The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 82. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host. I am also the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you so much for listening, as always. I hope uh, you are all staying safe and healthy. It has been a crazy couple of weeks since the general election. Um, depending on what side of the aisle you are on, you're either happy or you're not happy or you're confused uh, or you think it's over, you, you don't think it's quite over, who knows. But uh, the way it is certainly looking right now, we at least have a president-elect uh, who has been identified as such. Uh, and so the question now goes from, well, what kind of labor and employment issues might we be thinking about depending on who is in the White House for the next four years, to now asking a question, well, if we assume that we are going to be seeing a President Biden administration starting in January of 2021, what are some changes that employers uh, can expect from a Biden administration on some real hot labor and employment issues. Well, do I have an episode for you? I pulled together a terrific panel of my colleagues here at Cozen O'Connor, and uh, here we go. Take a listen. We have an absolute all-star panel today to talk with us, and I appreciate everybody joining us. We have been talking a lot over the past two weeks, uh, though it seems like it's been longer than that, about the politics of this year's general election, the fallout generally from the election, and what the next four years may look like for all of us generally. Absent uh, some significant turn of events in the coming weeks, it looks like we will have President Biden occupying the White House in Washington uh, with still a bit of a mix in Congress. So the question for all of us now is what would and what will a President Biden administration look like for employers and what are some of the key issues that employers and businesses really need to start thinking about as we get closer to Inauguration Day? Uh, I am joined, as I said, by an all-star cast of my partners here in Cozen's Labor and Employment Department, uh, and we are spread around the country as well to give you a great geographic diversity. We've got David Barron from our Houston office, Debbie Friedman from our Philadelphia office, Jeremy Glenn taking the Midwest from our Chicago office, Dan Johns, also from our Philadelphia office, and Michelle Miller in California. We could probably spend multiple episodes talking about all kinds of labor and employment issues, but we wanted to at least begin the discussion of some of the more key labor and employment topics uh, on the minds of employers, as I said, as we move into 2021. And let's start off with the big one that we've really been spending most of our time with uh, over the course of 2020, and that is COVID-19 and return to works, relief packages, workplace safety, uh, all of that. So 
when we're talking about COVID-19 uh, and how a Biden administration might look different, uh, let's start with uh, David and, and get some thoughts on uh, what we might see moving into 2021. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, I'll start with probably the most topical question right now that I've been getting from employers is mandatory vaccination is what's the Biden administration's policy going to be on whether um, citizens generally um, should have to be vaccinated? Because I think employers are thinking about whether they should require it. It'd be really nice if there was an actual law so that employers didn't have to make that judgment for their own workplaces. So I think that's going to be the big question out of the gate. Are we going to have a federal answer to that question? Is it going to be left to the states or local governments to decide, or is it ultimately going to fall on employers to have to make that decision um, for their workplace? So that's that's item one. I think two other things to keep your eye on are going to be, um, one, more shutdowns. Again, I think that's likely to be more of a state-by-state state, uh, local decision, but we may have a firmer push out of the federal government in that direction if things keep going the way they're going. And then lastly, OSHA. You know, We've really had not much coming out of OSHA under this administration, I suspect that will change pretty dramatically under the Biden administration. We have had no actual regulations or guidance of any meaningful type from OSHA. Again, it's been mainly left to the CDC and, and other state and local agencies. So those are the things I'd keep your eye on. And that's actually a big theme uh, as we're going to be talking throughout this. When you talk about state by state, uh, we need we do need to keep in mind that a lot of the discussion is centered on what's going to happen in Washington, what's going to be happening with existing or potential federal sort of national standards. But so much of labor and employment, as we all talk about all the time, is state and local initiatives. So we, we do need to keep in mind that uh, companies need to be looking at their particular jurisdictions uh, to determine some rules that may be applicable as well. Jeremy, I know you wanted to add something. David's comment about OSHA was spot on. I think under a Biden administration, you're likely to see an emergency temporary standard pretty quickly in 2020. And if folks want to look for possible templates for that standard, you might look to the states of Virginia and Michigan, who have already rolled out their own state OSHA emergency temporary standards. And they talk about employer-required cleaning, PPE, training, and notice requirements. So I think that's on the COVID-era landscape for sure. We were talking about vaccines. You mentioned that, David. Um, while we don't have any kind of real definitive guidance, certainly not from agencies like the EEOC as to whether a mandatory vaccine uh, will be permissible, we can look a little bit in, uh, from an analogous standpoint to what was done with flu vaccines, couldn't we? Yeah, and I think, you know, from an employer standpoint, you know, there's a combination of carrots and sticks, right? So there's lots of carrots that are available and have been used pretty effectively um, by employers to encourage employees to, to get flu shots through their wellness programs, et cetera. And on the stick side, we actually have a lot of precedent for laws regulating the healthcare space. In many states, there are, in fact, laws that already um, allow uh, employers, you know, for example, long-term care, nursing home, uh, hospitals to mandate um, various vaccinations, including flu shots. So I would fully expect that to be the case with covid so we will have at least some precedent and framework in that space before it gets to, you know, run-of-the-mill employers, because I would expect the healthcare employer, employers to get access to vaccinations first. So, you know, again, keep your eye on that, because if we have lots of problems and disputes in the healthcare space, then, you know, it's going to be the Wild West when it gets to the, you know, the office. <laughs> so 
Um, you, you know, so I think, you know, again, generally the law is you have to make exceptions for, for religious reasons and medical reasons. And, you know, that's usually where the rubber hits the road in terms of how broadly that gets uh, applied and litigated. Yeah, I mean, we've already heard uh, President-elect Biden talking about trying to get a national mask mandate. Uh, so it seems that, uh, you know, a Biden administration may be a little bit more aggressive in terms of a national plan uh, on COVID-19 and workplace-related uh, issues following COVID uh, than what we've seen so far. All right. Correct. So let's uh, let's go to our next topic, which is uh, also a real big one, particularly lately, and that is uh, the gig economy uh, and uh, independent contractor classification for employees. Uh, Michelle Miller, let's start with you. I know California is is big and we can do a whole episode uh, on just this topic. But but what do you what do you think we're going to be seeing as we get into a, a Biden administration here? Well, I know there was a, a proposition, got lots of press. It was the most heavily funded proposition on the ballot in November, Proposition 22, which um, exempted uh, certain types of businesses, drivers, the rideshare companies, services such as DoorDash um, uh, and uh, Postmates, etc. cetera. Um, and the, the way things, the, who was supporting who, um, the Biden administration and some key individuals, remember Kamala Harris is our former attorney general, um, were really against the idea of this hybrid classification for gig workers, but only gig workers in certain types of gig industries. And um, I think, you know, maybe in other parts of the country, we will see more um a move away from independent contractor and more toward employee for a lot of these workers. Uh, for California, uh, Proposition 22 is here to stay. It is a, um, it's very difficult to get it overturned. It's going to require seven eighths of the legislature and it has to be, in, has to be amended only if it really um, conforms to the intent of the underlying proposition. And most ways propositions in California get overturned is that five years later, six years later, this the there's reasons that the proposition really isn't working. So there's another proposition that's put on the ballot to overturn the prior proposition. So I I don't um I don't I think for California, Prop 22 is clearly here to stay, but I think that is going to be a lesson for other states, other legislatures, and certainly for our uh, new administration as to how to um, protect against hybrid models in other states. So I think we'll see more of it, but um, and it just doesn't mean that things are going to be clarified in California. It, we've been talking about AB5, Proposition 22, gig workers for, for many years now. Um, in fact, there's the big issue with Proposition 22 passed was, well, what is the impact on the existing litigation that's been brought either by the state or the state legislature, that it's not on its face, it's not retroactive and wages, the, you can go back three years. So there's, you know, potentially injury for past harms, but where like the two courts that are looking at it, those state labor commissioners said, we're plowing forward. And the both judges have sort of said, well, wait a minute, you know what, <laughs> we need to either have more briefing or we need to reconsider this a little bit more. So we're not done with litigation over AB5, <laughs> Prop 22. 
But I think it's, it's you know, it'll be a warning for the rest of the countries as to with an, enough money for a proposition or enough um, uh, ability to get the legislature to move to a hybrid model, then, um, you know, this is, this is a good roadmap for whether you are for or against a hybrid gig worker model. And whether you're for or against it, I mean, this really does go to the future of work in a lot of respects. Um, this whole notion of gig economy and we don't really always fall within the traditional employer employee relationship. So, you know, what's happening in California and certainly as we're starting to see things happening uh, on the state level, certainly uh, around the country. I, I do think this is going to continue to be a big issue as as uh, we can't fit a square peg in a in a round hole necessarily. Right. I mean, it's no, there's no question. Our workforce is completely it when most of our wage and hour in particular laws were developed, nobody envisioned a workforce like we have now. And so we are continuously trying to, you know, fit the proverbial square peg in the round hole. Um you know, maybe, you know, some there, the idea of a hybrid, maybe that is sort of what the future will bring, you know, that more of a, this is not what the workforce, nobody goes in nine to five, punches the clock, that's not, that is still there, but there's a whole nother part of our workforce, particularly in service industries, um, that don't fit that model that easily. So we'll see. Do we expect this to be uh, still a state-by-state state kind of issue, or do we think a Biden administration might be a little bit more active or aggressive when it comes to gig economy issues, uh, independent contractor, and this whole, you know, potential hybrid model that you've referred to? You know, I think that the the the, the you know the federal can only do so much. And Jeremy, you're in Illinois, so I know you probably have beginning to see some of this. Yes, and I think that the the Biden administration is going to be forced to deal with the statutes that are on the books. So mm -hmm. the Fair Labor Standards Act itself is unlikely to be amended by Congress, but the agencies that interpret those statutes will issue guidance and opinion letters and even potentially rulemaking on who's an independent contractor. I think one of the early things you'll see in the Biden administration is a move to reverse or change the Trump DOL's regulatory guidance on independent contractor. The, the Department of Labor issued a notice of proposed rulemaking this fall on a very short time frame. And the test they proposed largely focused on whether the worker had control of when they work and how they work and whether they can make profits or not. That really kind of looks at it differently than previous administrations who have looked at how does the company control the work. Mm -hmm. If that proposed rule doesn't go final by the end of the year, I would expect the Biden administration to withdraw it early in 2021. And if it does go final, then I would expect they may utilize the Congressional Review Act which allows any new administration to undo 11th hour, right before midnight, departing actions by a former administration. But, there's, but going back to your question, and I, you know, I think there'll be a lot. I agree with you, Jeremy, on the federal side. But the wage and hour is really very much determined by state. You know, as long as you're not 
provide lesser benefits, you can certainly make it more restrictive. So I think we'll see a lot more in some of the more, um, the states that are more like California-like, <laughs> I think we'll probably see more of these issues in terms of independent contractor and how do you deal with gig workers. I think obviously California and San Francisco, it's because this is, you know, this was a big issue and, and it was uh, it was particularly highlighted at the, during that the beginning of the pandemic because gig workers weren't getting unemployment, but at the same time, with everybody sheltering in place, so many people relied on gig workers to provide, you know, to, to deliver food and other, you know, medicine, et cetera. So it's an interesting, interesting situation. It's probably not states, the end of it. <laughs> and many states had for the first time unemployment benefits available to independent contractors. Yes through the pandemic unemployment assistance fund. So there's a roadmap right now for how states can administer those kind of benefits for independent contractors. And I think in states where you have democratic governors and legislators like Illinois, that's very likely to be on the short list of important topics next spring. I'm also wondering if we're looking for a roadmap uh, the other way, if we're looking to see how the federal uh, folks can get in on this gig economy, independent contractor situation. I'm wondering whether federal tax policy can also um, play into this. Uh, you know, certainly to the extent somebody is being classified as an independent contractor, the federal government, in addition to the states and the local municipalities, are losing out on certain kinds of federal employment taxes. So I'm wondering if, you know, that's a way that uh, the feds could get in on making some uh, policies, making some new rules uh, based on the future uh, of the gig economy. There's going to be no shortage of states looking to make money um, <laughs> after all this, so it's federal as well. So that's I think true. all that's on the table. That's very true. So let's go uh, to our next topic. Um, and, and I was about to say it's a, it's a big topic, but, but in a lot of respects, all of these topics that we're talking about uh, are really big. Uh, and this is dealing with affirmative action, uh, diversity and inclusion and the OFCCP. Uh, Debbie Friedman, I want to start with you because at the very least, federal contractors uh, have been going nuts uh, sorry to use a legal term, but they've been going nuts uh, over the past little while with President Trump's executive or, uh, order dealing with uh, unconscious bias and, and certain types of diversity training. Uh, Debbie, if you can start us off by just giving a, a quick sense of what that executive order essentially was and where do you see a Biden administration going when it comes to affirmative action and diversity and inclusion issues? Certainly. We anticipate that one of Biden's very first actions will be to withdraw the Trump administration's executive order 13950. And like you said, Mike, that's the executive order that has restricted diversity and inclusion training and specifically focuses on how employers can and cannot discuss systemic racism and unconscious bias. And it has left employers in a quandary in terms of what training is allowed. It also put in place a complaint hotline for employees to report concerns that training may be crossing the line. And so we expect that to become quickly undone under the Biden administration. I wouldn't be surprised if the Biden administration goes even further 
and tries to mandate, at least for federal contractors, that they actually provide diversity and inclusion training, and that that would include unconscious bias training. I think we'll see some other changes as well. I believe that the Biden administration is going to stop pursuing employers like the current administration has been doing with Microsoft and Wells Fargo to uh, seek to actively um, increase diversity in the ranks. And that's always been a lawful thing to do as long as you don't have quotas or favor one group over the other. And I expect the Biden administration to make that loud and clear and to back down from pursuits against those types of actions by employers. In fact, the Biden administration is also likely to mandate again, at least with respect to federal contractors, that companies begin publishing data on the diversity of their senior leadership, as well as the rest of their workforce. And the thinking is that that level of transparency is going to prompt employers to act more quickly in diversifying the workforce and in their efforts to hire, retain, and promote employees from diverse backgrounds. And we can even see that Biden himself just did this. Over the weekend, he modeled this behavior by disclosing the diversity of his transition team. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that type of activity. One more area where I expect to see some quick changes are in terms of religious exemptions. The Trump administration allowed a very broad religious exemption for discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. And we can expect that a Biden administration is going to narrow that so to make it much more difficult to engage in gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination and then claim religion as a defense. Yeah, that, I mean, that's all fascinating. So, so we're predicting that's going to all be within the first week uh, that Biden <laughs> gets in or, or sometime after that. Um, I mean, we've, we've been seeing a lot of social justice movements. Uh, certainly 2020 has had its share, but, you know, the last couple of years, whether it was uh, the hashtag Me Too movement and, and other um, important issues, do we think that we're going to see more of that or less of that uh, when it comes to uh, President Biden, who, who seems to be um, uh, a little bit more uh, interested in promoting social justice type causes? Do you think we're going to see a lot more of the social justice movements with employees and generally in a, in a Biden administration? I, I do, like, and I also expect that the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party is really going to push that agenda. Now, how much of it is going to result in legislation remains to be seen, but I think we're going to see a lot of social justice activities playing out on the streets and that working its way into the workplace as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely, and I, I know many of us on this call have seen you know, had had clients that have had groups of employees make lists of demands, for example. Um, you know, I, I think this issue is not going away. I think it's increasingly part of the red state, blue state politicization of our culture. Um, I mean, you know, you see every time they have a protest, there's a, one side of the street is a large group of people with one sign. And then the other side of the street is a large group of people with a very different sign. I think most workplaces are, are in the same boat. So, you know, one, one, I think one interesting trend to watch is, um, you know, in my career, most of the time, you never had to really worry about a reverse discrimination case. They've just never really been successful. But 
you know, there are a lot of companies really struggling with, you know, what to do with diversity inclusion. And I think you will see lawsuits and pushback and, and more issues, you know, in the future. I think that will be a trend. And David, just for those uh, listeners who are not as familiar with the concept of reverse discrimination, what are you talking about when you're referring to those kind of claims? Sure. Um, and, and Debbie's talking primarily about um, OFCCP federal contractors who have legal obligations to do certain things in terms of diversity, whereas it's not so uh, you know, regulated in, in for non-federal contractors. And, um, you know, the, the, this we really haven't seen a, a wave, if you will, of reverse discrimination lawsuits because most of the time they're so unsuccessful. But we're in an environment now where, again, you have um, companies being pressured um, to take action, many of it's for legitimate reasons to improve diversity. And the question is, how do you do that in a lawful way, right? Like you can go too far. Um, so I think, again, we're so, somewhat in uncharted territory where you have companies for very noble and good reasons trying to increase diversity in their workforces without running afoul of discrimination laws. And, and I don't know that we've ever really had that issue, um, you know, squarely in front of us. That's a good point, Dave. And I, I would expect that you're right. We're going to start seeing lawsuits as companies try to be progressive and try to increase diversity, but they might overstep the line because our laws are very clear, as you know, that we can't discriminate in favor of any one group over any other group. Or, or be perceived as stepping over the line, right? I mean, whether they do or don't step over the line, I think there's certainly going to be those who think that they step over the line. And I think that's really the issue here is we have very split views in America right now. And I, I think we're likely to see that carry over in the workplace. Debbie, it seems like uh, years ago, but it, but it's not so long ago that companies were wrestling with the EEO one uh, and, and all of these reports uh, where they've got to disclose uh, certain characteristics of their workforce. Do you think a Biden administration is going to change what uh, companies will have to be doing in terms of identification of employees moving forward? I don't see that as a high priority because there has been so many problems identified when the Obama administration tried to collect additional data on pay from employers. And it has set back all of the EEO-1 reporting across the country for years. In fact, they have just identified a new vendor to help institute EEO-1 reporting. There's no current plan to reintroduce collection of data um, for compensation or additional classes. And I really think that first, the concentration is going to be getting the EEO-1 in its very basic format back on track before there is a bigger grab for more data. Interesting. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about uh, labor unions and labor relations. Um, whether you are a currently a unionized facility or you're not, there is a lot of debate uh, that's been going on for a while. Uh, here we are in 2020. Are labor unions even necessary anymore? Are they prevalent uh, at all still in 2020? Uh, Dan Johns, I know you do a lot on the traditional labor side. Uh, what's your feeling and view on where we are with uh, labor unions in this country in 2020? And, and what do you see as happening uh, with the Biden administration? Uh, thanks, Mike. I mean, where are we? I would say over, you know, across the United States, 
um, organizing continues to to be to decline or unionization continues to decline. However, there are many people who've looked closely at this issue that believe going into a Biden administration, as well as coming out of the pandemic, the circumstances of the pandemic being circumstances that oftentimes will drive union organizing, such as bad economy, such as issues relating to employee safety, such as um, people who feel like, um, you know, they haven't been properly protected by their employer, that all those types of issues are going to sort of usher in a golden era, a new era of union organizing coming out of, of the pandemic with an administration that will be much, much, much more friendly towards organizing than um, than the prior one. And And don't take my word for it. Sometimes when you look ahead to, an or, to a new administration, you have to sort of read the tea leaves as to what you think will happen. Um, but sometimes you just have to listen to, to, to what they have said. And so if you look at the Biden plan, I think you really just have to listen to what they've said about uh, unions. Number one, um, Biden wants to check the abuse of corporate power over labor and hold corporate executives personally accountable for labor law violations. Keep that in mind. That's not accountable for labor law violations. That is personally accountable for labor law violations. Um, second, he says specifically in his plan that he wants to encourage and incentivize unionization and collective bargaining. Third, um, he wants to ensure that workers are treated with dignity and receive the pay, benefits, and workplace protections that they deserve. Um, those are essentially the three prongs of the Biden plan with respect to unions. And they would suggest that we will be ushering in an era of um, organizing, but also from the standpoint of where employers are, um, that they will be on the defensive with respect to efforts to, um, you know, to, to stay non-union. And certainly from the standpoint of where the NLRB has been and will be, um, you know, it, it is obvious that there will be much, much, much more pro-labor uh, appointees to the NLRB, which anyone who follows the board knows um, that the law swings and ping pongs back and forth, depending on the administration. And we will be in a complete reversal from where the Trump administration board uh, has been. So um, many, many changes to come. Many of them, I think, will involve things that that um, employers have seen before, particularly under the Obama board. But it will be a drastic reversal, of course, for sure. Mike, this is Jeremy. I'll, I'll second what Dan was just saying. The, the environment is very right for unions to have a persuasive conversation with workers. Anytime when employees feel like they're not safe or they're not being heard or there's favoritism in the workplace, they look to an outside entity to help. And if they don't go to the Civil Rights Enforcement Agency, like EEOC or the State Equal Employment Commission, then they go to a union to speak up on their behalf. And the papers have been filled the last several months with employees who feel concerned about their safety in the workplace, who feel concerned about their ability to accommodate child care and elder care responsibilities. If employers aren't responsive to those conversations, then employees will find somebody else to help them have that conversation. And Jeremy, let me say that I agree with that. I mean, a lot of people have said, though, in looking at this issue, why hasn't it come yet? And um, you know, we're more or less, what, eight months? Uh, you lose track of time into the pandemic. But but I think the, the answer to that question is that um, most unions still organize the old-fashioned way, which is they go out and talk to people in person. They hold meetings. Um, those things haven't happened. So I believe sort of the level of organizing has been depressed. 
But those issues won't go away. And when the pandemic, you know, we're looking at hopefully coming up on a vaccine or something like that. But when there is some relief from that, I believe that's when the interest and the phone calls will really, really be made. And um, that's when I think we'll see that explosion. I also think just echoing that, I think that the if anything, this pandemic has shown is the hollowing out of this middle class that really were solid you know, union positions. And there are a lot of people that were doing okay, and the pandemic has, you know, really shown them how lack of safety, lack of um, a lack of a safety net, both personally as well as at work. And I, I, I agree, Dan, what you're saying. I think the the opportunity for unions are going to be tremendous, and it's the the administration, the the new administration, the background, it is going to be, you know, just be a fertile ground for unions to really start to change that, that uh, momentum from less, less members to increasing members. And also that you, you really, they, you need a different way with talking about all these different types of workers and the way that we model now, um, you need, need, you know, you need to be a little bit more inventive in how you actually go about reaching folks. But I, I just think this, you know, the next four years are going to be pretty significant for union activity. Two points to add. One is that uh, independent contractors generally can't organize. Employees can. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a big motivation for a, an administration that's pro-labor to come up with policies and regulations that are more encouraging people to be considered employees. Um, point number uh, Dave, two. Dave, one yeah. point to respond to that. One of the, the prongs, again, of the subprongs of the Biden plan suggests tightening the definition of independent contractors to allow gig economy workers such as Uber drivers to organize. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be lots of pressure there to, to make that happen. And yeah. then the, the second the second point is that, you know, to your point of it hasn't happened yet, but will that happen in the future? I think for most people who are working adults right now, you know, how how they're treated at work during the coronavirus will be the defining memory in their careers and their and, and their people's memories are going to be very long. You know, it's not like just this is not something that most of us are going to forget anytime soon. It's going to be like, where were you when Kennedy got shot? So I, I think employers and I've been telling this all year is like how you treat your people this year is going to have just a huge lasting impact. I mean. There will be workplaces that are organized five years from now, 10 years ago, or 10 years in the future, using arguments about things that happened during COVID, right? Which hopefully we're not still in COVID five or 10 years from now. But, but I mean, people will have long memories and, and will be, this will be used against employers in every way possible for a very, very long time. Correct. I be- agreed. And so the question really isn't, you know, what, what's new about employee complaints? You know, we, we've had forever employees who don't feel as if their voices are being heard, uh, to Jeremy's point, and, and employees that have complaints about workplace issues. The question is, will a Biden administration uh, be more likely uh, to uh, create an environment where unions uh, are allowed to develop uh, more and, and represent and serve employees more than they might have had under uh, a prior administration. And, and I don't to to answer that question, Mike. I don't think there's any question. I mean, I haven't touched on all of it, but there are a lot of prongs and a lot of items in the Biden plan relating to labor that would absolutely do that, including, for example. Um, although I feel like this could be questionable, um, you know, legally, I guess I guess they would have to, to change Taft-Hartley, but um, banning right to work laws um, is one of the prongs of that plan. Um, 
you know, ensuring public employees have a greater say in the workplace, which, again, is interesting because they're excluded from the coverage of the National Labor Relations Act, um, forbidding employers from holding mandatory meetings during organizing campaigns. So essentially forbidding the old captive audience speech and talking to your employees about unionizing issues. I mean, there is just no question whatsoever that if this stuff um, gets through, and a lot of this would have to essentially be statutory and it may not get through a Republican Senate, it likely wouldn't get through, but but um, even a quarter of it would really drastically change that sort of atmosphere such that I think you'll see organizing. Interesting. And, and I just want to touch on one last point before we get to a, a new topic. Uh, Jeremy, you started mentioning this in an earlier uh, in response to an earlier question when we were talking about the role of agencies. And uh, Dan, you mentioned it a couple of minutes ago when you referred to the fact that the law does swing or the agencies uh, tend to swing based on political wins. What, what do you both see or what do any of you see uh, as the developing role of federal agencies under a Biden administration that might look different than uh, what we've seen in the last four years? Uh, Jeremy, you want or you want me to? I'm happy to jump in. I mean, look, um, I think as it stands, most of us believe or it appears as if there will be a divided government, which means you're not going to see too many new legislative developments. But where then is the sort of sharp end of the spear from the standpoint of what an administrative administration wants to push in its agenda? It will be in executive orders and it will be in administrative action. And so what we see, Mike, I think will take place on the agency level. Um, the NLRB is a little bit different in that they typically don't make rules. They typically make decisions, but they just use those decisions uh, as a way to change the rules more or less. So. Dan is spot on. The um, executive orders are going to be the Biden administration's first way of revealing their priorities. So if you are a government contractor, you do business with the federal government, you'll be the first one to see the real Biden priorities. You may very well see the return of the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces executive order, which had the so-called blacklisting requirement, meaning that if you want a contract with the federal government, you have to disclose your compliance with or violation of every major civil rights law. In addition to executive orders, then agency guidance and regulations from the Department of Labor, the National Labor Relations Board, the EEOC, that's the next fastest way for an administration to reveal its priorities. But I will say there's a little relief there because I feel like it's turning a battleship. It doesn't happen quickly. Major positions like Secretary of Labor, Wage Hour Administrator, have to be Senate confirmed. So we saw in the early part of the Trump administration how difficult it can be to get someone confirmed. I think we'll get into the fall of 21 before you see major changes in the leaders of the NLRB, the EEOC, the Department of Labor. So over the course of four years, yes, agency action will be prevalent, and it will be, in many ways, a return to the eight years of the Obama administration. But there's time to prepare. There's time to call us, listeners. Cozen O'Connor Labor and Employment Lawyers are ready to help you prepare for the sea change that's coming in the fall of 21. And it's frustrating because, uh, you know, talking to a lot of employers who want to do the right thing and, and want to start modeling their behavior uh, in the future uh, to what the regulations are requiring of them. And when you have 
uh, political winds changing every four years and, and in some cases then every eight years, it's difficult to advise companies and then for companies to um, to decide what behavior they need to engage in when it comes to their employees because the rules seem to shift back and forth so dramatically. Yes, a Biden administration will put more money in the budgets of these agencies. And these agencies will focus more on enforcement than education and compliance as they have the last four years. So you're absolutely right. Plan now and be prepared for a more robust agency action. But remember, when agencies flip flop on their decisions, they get challenged in court. And judges take a um, uh, a pessimistic view of agencies that simply flip-flop because the occupant in the White House has changed. So that's why if agency guidelines are going to change, it needs to be supported by notice and comment rulemaking and solid practical reasons. Well, let's stick with one of the... Um... Uh, one of the most active uh, federal bodies, and that's the United States Department of Labor. And uh, David, I want to go to you and talk a little bit about uh, what a Biden administration might look like when it comes to wage and hour issues and, and the Department of Labor. Yeah, I'll just piggyback on what Jeremy just said. I mean, I think one of the ways that change in administration directly impacts companies is, you know, most companies are large enough to have or many are, you know, have, have employees and have employee issues, which means you're interacting with agencies. And, you know, those interactions can be very aggressive or they can be, you know, very friendly. Sometimes that depends upon the investigator. Um, but in many cases, it depends upon the administration and what their, you know, priorities are. I mean, whether you get an onsite every time from the EEOC makes the difference in the life of an HR <laughs> professional, right? I mean, uh, whether the Department of Labor is willing to settle a, a matter by excluding liquidated damages and just settling for the actual liability. Th those are practical day-to-day -day issues that companies and HR professionals actually um, hit, hit. So I think those are things that are, can dramatically change from administration to administration. And, and you know, we should be aware of that. Um, specific things on, on the radar screen for DOL, I would say, you know, not DOL necessarily, but the Biden administration, minimum wage, you know, we, we've now gotten to a point where the federal minimum wage has sort of fallen behind most state minimum wages. You know, do we just let that continue or does, you know, uh, president Biden and his department of labor really go out there and champion an increase in the federal minimum wage? I think that remains to be seen. I'm guessing the answer is going to be yes. Um, you know, same thing on the salary threshold. We had the president Obama effort that failed, which was then followed up by a Trump DOL increase, you know, which was smaller than what, um, the Democrat administration wanted. So do we see a return to that and revisiting that? Or do they feel like we got, you know, most of what we wanted and leave that alone? Um, so I think those are really big issues sitting out there is, you know, minimum wage for non-exempt workers and then the minimum salary threshold for exempt workers. And certainly to the extent that we've got uh, pandemic unique issues, uh, such as, you know, how do we track time and accurately compensate for time spent uh, for employees who are teleworking, um, that's going to be something that we'll continue to have to watch as well. Yeah. All right. Um, so the Department of Labor, we certainly expect to continue to be a, a real active player uh, on the wage and hour front with a Biden administration. Um, let's let's talk a little bit, Debbie. I, I, it's it's interesting. All of these issues that people were 
talking so much about pre-pandemic, I don't want to say they're completely off of everybody's radar um, because I would suggest that they're not important. But when we were talking pre-pandemic about salary history bans um, and other issues like pay equity uh, that so many people referred to as uh, gender-based issues, um, where do we see those issues going uh, under a Biden administration? I would expect to see a lot of activity in this realm. And I think you hit the nail on the head with salary history. I would expect to see the federal government trying to ban inquiries on salary history across the board during the application process and possibly even the use of salary history in setting compensation. And we've seen again, state and local Governments take the lead on this, and there is some inconsistency, but I would expect to see it on the federal level. I would also expect to see increased efforts to invalidate forced arbitration agreements with the goal of forcing pay disparity disputes out into the public. And I would also, although I said I didn't see a change in the EEO1 reporting requirement in the near future, I do think that the Biden administration will try other mechanisms that might be faster and easier to get more transparency on compensation data. And I think if you look to the UK and how they require certain employers to publish gender pay disparities, I could see the Biden administration doing the same, at least with respect to federal contractors where they can act more quickly and not necessarily with Congress's approval. And along the lines of what Jeremy and David were saying, I definitely expect there to be increased enforcement um, with money put into that from the Biden administration. And I think we're going to see aggressive attempts to seek relief on pay equity issues um, for women and for minorities because we do hear a lot about gender pay disparities, but as we know, there's also significant disparities amongst minorities and between minorities um, and other workers. So I would expect that to be a huge issue in the next few years. Okay, anyone else have any other uh, thoughts on where we might be going when it comes to pay equity or some of these other uh, gender-based issues that uh, Debbie mentioned? Mike, I it's think, Jeremy. Oh, sorry, Dan. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna echo what Debbie said, aggressive enforcement, those two words. <laughs> and, and Mike, I was gonna add that historically we have seen the concepts of paid family leave in the gender equity conversation. And I think that the die is cast for a national paid family leave program. And that would encompass not only sick time, but also time off for major life events or time off for major health catastrophes. With the passing of the FFCRA with huge bipartisan support, you see that Congress is ready to think about a national paid leave program. Now, the funding mechanism has to be worked out because FFCRA is basically paid for by every single taxpayer because it's a federal government tax credit reimbursement. But there are at least 10 states that have paid family leave programs, and they fund them through a combination or a, one of three ways, employee paid, 
or employer paid or a combination where both pay into a fund where the benefits are available. So I think that a Biden administration will carry forward a priority of, if not continuing the FFCRA, then establishing a paid family and health leave program. Michelle, what's happening in California? Anything um, uh, going on in the paid? Well, I, I always think, yeah, I always think about this, and I think this would be great. Except California always tends to outdo whatever <laughs> the federal government does. So I think, oh no, a whole bunch of new changes in the law and direction of the federal agencies, meaning that there'll be even more going on in California. Which and 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 California has this very unique. Um, you know, every one of our counties tend to do something different. So if you're trying to do business here, there's the federal law, the state law, and then what county you happen to be in. Like Prop 22, for example, with the drivers, there's a very, very calculated, so it has to be a certain amount above minimum wage. And minimum wage in California differs depending on where you are. So if you're driving through three counties, how do you figure out what your minimum wage is? That's, it's just, a, it's always very challenging. And then just on the pay data, you know, California does its own thing. It or it just it's it's starting to collect pay data, and is um, that it's got to be reported to the state agency by April of next year. So I, I look at this, and I I just think, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a very busy four years. I think the other thing that we're starting to see in California, and I know there's a bit more of this in the um, in other areas, is the idea of predictive scheduling where if you're trying to balance, you know, your, your home, your personal life, your kids, um, and sometimes two or three other jobs, um, the ability to know at some point in the, you know, so it, with enough time so that you can actually schedule your life. So I think we'll start seeing a little bit more on predictive scheduling. I don't know if we'll see that on a national level, um, but I, you know, I think that that's, that's up there. I don't, you know, I do agree that we'll have more of a um, federal, you know, um, paid leave, paid sick leave, paid uh, medical leave, paid family leave. Um, you know, we, we already have that in California and various counties all do their own thing. So, you know, I just see it as being a very, you know, it, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I, I would imagine that what California provides is not going to be, oh my goodness, the federal government's actually more inclusive. I think it'll be probably the opposite, but we'll see. I think you're right, Michelle. In fact, I heard something recently from the Chamber of Commerce that they would support the idea of a level playing field nationally. That's really of great benefit to employers who have locations in multiple states and multiple counties in California. So the trade-off for a national paid leave act would be uniformity unless, unless an employer is in one state only and they've taken the time to ramp up to meet California requirements, then they could continue to comply with those and that would satisfy the federal plan. The problem is whatever we did uniformly in California would just keep one upping. So they'd have to actually <laughs> completely preempt that area so that California, California has not met a law that it couldn't write itself. Right. As soon as we made it uniform, we would just set a new baseline for California to exceed. Yeah, we have Cal OSHA, there's OSHA. We have Warnack, we have Cal One. You just can continue to go down the list. And then sometimes it's oh we have sick leave, we have a maybe 
hopefully made federal, then we have state, and oh, right, but Emeryville does its own thing, and San Francisco does its own thing, which of course is different than what LA does, and also different from other counties. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly challenging to do business here. So before, as we're getting close to the end here for this uh, episode, which has uh, really been terrific, uh, thanks uh, so much to everybody for your time. Um, before I go quickly around the horn for one last takeaway uh, about what we might expect with a Biden administration, I, I do want to ask a million dollar question that so many of us keep getting asked when it comes to the FFCRA. Um, we know that the uh, the COVID-19 is not likely to be going away in 45 days at the end of this calendar year. Uh, however, as things stand right now, the uh, Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, is going to be going away at the end of this year as of December 31st. A um, lot of prognostication as to whether that's going to get extended or amended into 2021. Um, anybody on this panel uh, have a prognostication to offer as to what we will see regarding the FFCRA, whether uh, in the last days of a Trump administration or the beginning of a Biden administration? My quick, my quick prediction is that we won't see much until the fate of the Senate is decided. I think that's probably going to be the theme of the next 30 days. I'd be surprised if on really any meaningful front, Congress does anything because the Democrats are going to want to wait if they've got control to do what they really want to do. Um, and I think they probably won't want to agree to half of what they want, um, you know, earlier. So I, I think that's probably going to fall into that same category of probably it'll be extended, but the question is going to be, do we just extend it or does it get substantially blown open and, and, and you know, expanded, which I think will happen if, if the Senate falls to the Democrats. Fascinating. We will uh, we will see. It uh, covers so much of the ground that we've talked about, whether it's uh, the national kind of leave standard, whether it's uh, gender issues, other types of issues that we've been talking about. An, an extension or amendment of the FFCRA will be uh, significant for so many people. All right. Well, we are coming to the end of uh, this episode. I do want to go around the horn. If anybody has uh, 10 seconds of a takeaway for all of our listeners on what we might expect from a Biden administration when it comes to labor and employment law, let's go around the horn quickly. Uh, Michelle Miller from our California office. Any uh, final parting thoughts? No, I think the rest of the country will begin to look like California. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeremy Glenn uh, out of our Chicago office. I think COVID will continue to be the dominant conversation piece for several months. I believe the FFCRA will be extended and there will be tremendous assistance to states, both through unemployment and through healthcare delivery. I think whether it's a $500 billion or a $2 trillion package is yesterday's news. It's going to be larger than that. And finally, I would remind employers that over the course of the next four years, if agency decisions evolve into a way that you disagree with, there may be more friendly outcomes in the court of law. Remember, President Trump appointed and confirmed more judges in the last four years than his predecessor in two terms before that. So the courts have become the more conservative viewpoint vis-a-vis -vis employment laws than they were eight years ago. Great. David Barron, any parting thoughts out of our Houston office? I agree with Jeremy that unfortunately COVID is going to be the dominating issue for quite some time into the Biden administration. I think the question of what to do with the vaccine is going to be probably one of the biggest issues in 2021. 
Great, and let's uh, end with our two Philadelphia residents, Dan Johns in Philadelphia. Uh, any parting thoughts on a Biden administration for employers? If you want to predict where things will be, I think look to the last two years of the Obama administration, and that will be the starting point for where you see a Biden administration on labor and employment issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And Debbie Friedman, also out of our Philadelphia office, a parting thought. I agree with Dan, and I would say when the dust settles on COVID, which hopefully we'll see happen in 2021, that there's going to be a lot of pressure on pay equity, like I mentioned. So if I were an employer, I would be saying now's the time to take a critical look at your hiring practices and your pay practices to put yourself in the best position for those lawsuits that are sure to be happening. And I, I would just, just, Michelle, I would just add to that, that what everybody has gone through and, and is going to continue to go through, there, I think there'll be increased focus on helping working people, be it by leave, by better unemployment, longer unemployment, by, you know, increasing uh, hourly rates. Uh, I mean, I think that that will be the focus of the Biden administration, and it will be across all different types of of laws, pay data. I mean, you could just go on and on, but I think that will be the focus. That is a great way to tie this whole hour up in a nice, neat ribbon. I do want to give two quick plugs before we uh, shut down here. Uh, if you're interested, particularly in, in Dan Johns and, and on the traditional labor and the, the labor unions and some of what we might be expecting in a Biden administration, if you're interested uh, not only in that topic some more, but, but uh, actually seeing some slides to go along with it, we are continuing our Labor and Employment Department's COVID-19 web webinar series uh, this coming Thursday, November 19th at 1 o'clock p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. If you have not registered for that, and as I said, Dan Johns and a team of our attorneys will be continuing the discussion. If you have not registered and you're interested in it, uh, please go to our website, cozen.com, and feel free to register for that free webinar, where you will also see uh, registration opportunities for future webinars. If you happen to be listening to this podcast and November 19th has already come and gone, and you are still wishing that you listened and watched the webinar on November 19th, lo and behold, you still can by going to Cozen.com and checking out the link that will be available for you to watch and listen to the November 19th webinar, um, as well as other COVID-19 webinars that our department has put on. Uh, last plug as well, staying with our Cozen.com website. Um, if you're interested in all kinds of coronavirus, COVID-19 references, materials, um, and other guidance that we have put together as a firm, please go to our website and click the Coronavirus Task Force banner, and you can find uh, some great materials there. Um, but uh, until then, uh, David Barron, Debbie Friedman, Jeremy Glenn, Dan Johns, and Michelle Miller, thank you so much for such an informative hour. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you once again for listening. I hope you found some of that useful to bring back to your organizations. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.